Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. Happy Election Day from where we live. If you're headed to the polls today, we want to hear from you. In Bridgeport, Connecticut's uh, Bridgley Zoo is holding its fourth mayoral race. We hear about the animal candidates and how you can vote for your favorite. That's later. First up, we've been learning about how educators are getting students engaged in the electoral process this year on where we live. One way to do this, student government. When you think of class elections, a couple things probably come to mind. But our next guest says student government is much more than prom committees and candidate speeches in the cafeteria. Joining us now is Christopher Tomlin. He's the executive director for the Connecticut Association of Student Councils. Thank you so much, Christopher, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, did you ever run for a student council election? Let us know, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Christopher, can you start with telling us about the history of student councils and student elections? You know, how far does this go? Um, student councils and student governments go far back. The earliest examples we have in this country date all the way back to the 1700s. And the earliest examples we find in Connecticut are in the 1830s and the 1890s. So there's a long history of getting students involved with their education and, and training them in the beginnings of democracy at an early age. And we mentioned earlier, too, that when we think about student councils, we think about pep rallies or prom committees. What are some of the misconceptions around student councils of what they and what they do? Can you share with us? I think the biggest misconception would be that student councils or student governments are solely dance organizations and and spirit driven. That is a key component of what they do. Um, However, along with that, there's the service component. There is the democratic ideals uh, with voting in meetings and really uh, beginning their paths towards um, really getting them involved in citizenship at an early age. And I think depending on the schools, too, or the advisor even, you know, there are different ways to run a student council. So is there a general look of what that looks like here in Connecticut? In Connecticut, there is not. And one one of the fun things and one of the amazing things about Connecticut is the diversity of all of our various student councils and student governments. You have some that have open memberships. You have some that are leadership teams only. You have others who are full-fledged unicameral systems of governments. It's really unique and fun to visit all these different schools and to hear all the different ways that they're organized. And can you also share with us some of the characteristics that exist within every student council um, or student government? There's a structure, right? It starts with citizenship? Um, it starts with citizens, yep, exactly. So one of the things we do at the Connecticut Association of Student Councils is um, we have this program called CT Rises, Citizenship, Recognition, Inspiration, Service, Engagement, and Spirit. And we view that as a well-rounded student council or student government. So we hope that all of our member schools, and we encourage them all, and we support them all to develop all these different aspects to really make a well-rounded student council or student government that can be highly impactful in their school. 
So I definitely want to talk about the impacts and how students can get involved and how you encourage them to get involved. But I, how do you keep the student council from basically becoming a popularity contest? That's one of the things that you're always going to be facing. So there's a lot of different programs that are used across the state of Connecticut. We encourage all of our student council and student governments to mimic the best practices of the U.S. government. Um, and really begin to train them in what these real-world situations are going to look like. So, for example, um, when it comes down to applications, having um, having them getting you know 30 to 40 of their classmates' signatures, really beginning the idea of um, getting that initial support before they can even run. Um, but then once they're running, to try to encourage them to develop platforms. Many schools, if students are going to run, they have to put forward a platform. What would they do if elected? Um, some schools have students submit one-minute videos that are then made available to the student body to try our best to make it not just a popularity contest, but to give the students who are electing their leaders a real idea about what the implications and the excitement about electing some of these individuals is going to mean for them and their school experience. And so as we continue to talk about this, and I think there's a lot more interest from students themselves to become more involved, especially, you know, exposure to information nowadays with social media and the Internet. And so I think there's a lot more interest compared to maybe when I was in school. But how do you get students uh, to take these elections seriously? Um, I remember my exposure is really, you know, School of Rock. And I think the movie Napoleon Dynamite is, is a cultural shift for many people. So how do you get students to really be engaged and take this process seriously? Honestly, it's it's not that hard. But one of the glorious things is because of social media, because of the connections that all these students have, so many of these students, more so than I think even when I was in high school, are so interested in the electoral process and what's going on in our country. I can think back you know, every time that we have an election year, student government hosts a watch party for the debates. Student government hosts inauguration watch party, uh, regardless of the outcome, just simply being excited about um, what's going on in this country. So the students these days are, are really interested in being involved with this. Um, like I said, more so than I think that, that even people my age were in high school. And with this process, too, I feel like you are really committed to breaking the stereotypes of what student councils really look like. And your school even does something called ranked choice voting. Can you tell us what that looks like? So I work at Woodland Regional High School. And one of the things that we do is we use uh, ranked choice voting. Uh, Years ago, we had had an election where it it came down and you had several candidates running and, and they successfully created what's called a spoiler effect where they were able to draw votes away from another candidate. So the students um, who run our elections were, were kind of interested and I want to know if there was other ways to hold elections. In the United States, we typically use first past the post with a couple exceptions. And the students, this is about the, the time that I think it was Maine was looking into adopting um, single transferable votes. So the students researched it and introduced it. And it's something that we use in our school for all of our elections, whether it's um, electing new members to our student government, it is selecting the theme for the homecoming dance, all of those we now use single transferable vote, which allows students to basically rank their choices rather than just selecting their one winner. And with that, too, and obviously, you know, students who want to be involved, they, they care, and you want to give students 
ownership on the council and the projects that they want to to forward or you know the the things that they believe in but there's a, there has to be a little bit of adult oversight here so how are you involved in guiding the students so i i always describe my role as i am the guy in the corner helping them staying out of their way um, my primary job when, whenever i'm involved with them is to model the best best practices um, to serve as the institutional memory um, and to really give them the resources um, to help them be able to advocate for themselves. Um, so years ago at my school, the students wanted to change one of the policies and uh, working with them and, and directing them of who to talk to and helping them prepare for their meeting to ultimately sit down with the administration and pitch their ideas. And in this case, um, they were actually able to get actual change in the building, which was insanely powerful for these students. You had freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors sitting there with the administrative team talking about making changes, and the administrators were listening to them. So this was one of those moments where the students are walking away knowing that they had made an impact, and they're sharing it with their friends, and these younger students seeing that, they spent the next four years in student government also making changes. So that experience must really give them ownership of what's happening in school. You know, what was it like after that experience? Oh, after that, it, it was so, so enjoyable just working with these students and seeing them just with a different attitude and a different direction. You know, this confidence that they had that they had gone through this process and they had seen that change. And it was something that all of them were insanely proud of. And I, I hope that to this day they still remember that. And I mean, the fact that you're talking about it, I think it's very memorable and positive. So hopefully they, they do remember it. And of course, we were just talking about students who have seen the change, who navigated the change and, and experienced it. I do want to also talk about, you know, one thing we'll be discussing a lot this hour, too, is navigating apathy and students who don't feel like they can make a difference. So how do you demonstrate that doing this work, you know, being on the student council, being involved, uh, even in student government can make a difference? With the small things, with, with going around and talking and finding out what's going on in, this, in the school. One of the things we do at my school and we encourage all schools to do is to have the members of the Student Government Student Council go out and talk to the students in the building and find out what they're thinking, what interests they have, what concerns they have, and then bringing that to administration's attention, really showing that, you know, yes, you could be upset about this. You know, however, there is a solution. There is a way to solve some of these problems. I know there, there was one school where um, there was some concerns over bathroom facilities and, and the students were able to advocate to the administration to get that taken care of. And, and that's a, an amazing moment showing that, you know, you, you can make a difference in your building. You can make a difference in your experience. And I want to take a moment now to bring in Kevin Brown, who is a Connecticut state representative for Vernon. And along with that position, he is also a teacher and fellow student council proponent. Representative Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Where We Live today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. And so I want to start by asking, you know, how were you involved in student councils? Well, uh, I myself was actually not involved in student council as a high school student. Uh, found myself getting involved in it as a college student, and then went on to become a high school social studies, primarily civics teacher. And through that process, you know, engaged more in working with students and their civic engagement, and, and found that one of the ways that you can do that well is by engaging them in their own buildings, in their own schools, and getting them involved in, in student council, student government. 
So that's a bit of a, a plot twist, I think. So you went from being an advisor to the student council, and then you ran for election. So and now you're here as a as a state rep. What do your students uh, think of that? Well, I, I think that they enjoyed that process uh, last last fall when I was running for the legislature. Uh, they got to see it firsthand. And the nice thing about that was in teaching of civics uh, at the time, the students kind of got to ride that along with me. And so they were seeing it in real time. We weren't just learning it from a book, uh, which is, is never the way, in my opinion, that you should teach civic education. But they got to see it firsthand, everything we were talking about and how the process worked. They got to see it through me. And, you know, I, I like to think that that uh, gave them a, a great experience in their learning. Well, there's definitely something valuable about learning uh, outside of the classroom. And of course, you're in a different position now, so you're not directly involved in student councils any, anymore, but you're still having conversations with students about running and the process. So can you tell us what do those conversations look like? Absolutely. Uh, students often, now that they know what position I hold outside of the school building, uh, students that I have at, in class, students that I've never had before will come up to me oftentimes and, and ask me how the, the government works or, or how my other job is, uh, so to speak. And, you know, they are inquisitive. They want to know more. Uh, obviously, they have different things going on in their lives, but I think a lot of them realize that there is a, a greater world out there that, you know, there are decisions being made that affect them and they want to know how they can get involved and, and what role they can play in it. Uh, and again, I think that starts with how much we are preparing them in our schools, you know, civic education, where that begins and how much of it they should get. And talking about what kind of roles they can play in this process, can you respond to what we heard Christopher say earlier about getting kids engaged in the electoral process and taking this work seriously? Absolutely. Uh, to me, there's no more important thing that we can do. Obviously, every subject area is important and it's nothing against any of the other subjects they'd be learning. But at the end of the day, all of them will be citizens of their communities. And it requires us, democracy requires us to take an active role. It's not a spectator sport, as they say. So in order to do that, they have to have a solid understanding of how the process works and what their role in it is. And that doesn't mean that all of them will themselves seek elected office one day, be it from student government uh, up through you know Congress, but they, they should know where and how to utilize the system of government that they're living under. And, and it's making the decisions they have to abide by, the rules and the laws that they have to follow, so they should know how it works. Um, you know, so providing them a solid civic education from the time they enter school through the time they graduate is one way to do that. And so as they're learning how the process works and, and navigating their interests too, I think within the process, you know, what are some of the issues that kids are passionate about? I'm imagining that when they're passionate about something, certainly when I'm passionate about something, I really want to do something and make a difference. And especially with so many different issues out there with school shootings and book bans, you know, schools have definitely become very politically charged places. So are you hearing any specific issues that the kids are passionate about? Well, definitely those that you just mentioned, obviously those major national issues, uh, school shootings, uh, the book bans, uh, this kind of political divisiveness that's out there, that that matters to them. But I think also I see oftentimes students who do find the local issues. They may not realize how those decisions are made or what and where those decisions are made, what level of government uh, takes care of that, but they do see it in their communities. And, and honestly, that's the way that I've always tried to teach civics is to get them involved locally, to have them find 
an issue that matters to them in their local community, in their neighborhood. Uh, so issues like uh, school uh, affordability, uh, college affordability, uh, the the safety of their neighborhoods, gun violence in their neighborhood, affordable housing is a major issue that I just this week had a conversation with a student. Um, you know, many of my students, I teach at the Creck Academy of Computer Science and Engineering, and many of my students come from Hartford in the greater Hartford area, and, and they see a lack of housing. And, and so had a great conversation with a student about that this week. And so trying to find those local issues that matter to them locally on the ground where they live is critically important to engaging them in the process, because then you can teach them how they can actually make a difference. And, and it's much easier than they might think. And Christopher, we've been talking about the process and, and civics education and whatnot, but also want to talk about service. So how does being on student council build an appreciation of service? One of the things that we talk about in student government, student councils is service learning and that idea of making an impact in your community and an understanding about what that impact means, hopefully developing these students to be lifelong involved in their community. And like actually just what you just mentioned, too, you know, this this is one of their perhaps first taste and first exposure that students have to collaboration and leadership. So what do you think students learn about um, these skills by being on student councils? Does it go beyond the classroom? Oh, absolutely. I, I think this is something that is designed to, like I said, transition to all parts of their life. You know, they're learning um, not only you know, service, being involved with the people around them. Uh, but they're learning all those amazing soft human skills of being able to interact with people, being able to talk to people, you know, group dynamics, all of those things that will help make them um, better citizens and, and, and better humans going forward. And Kevin, we have a couple minutes left, but I want to ask you, um, you know, today we're mostly focused on student councils and student government at high school level, but uh, we also have um, a new set of standards that was approved by the Connecticut State Department of Education recently for teaching social studies, which, as you know, includes a component on civics. So understanding, talking about an understanding of the government and the election process can start early in, the, in your education. You know, what are your thoughts of that? Absolutely. And, and that was one of the most important things for me to see that change to the State Department of Education, but also one of the bills that I put in as soon as I got to Hartford about increasing our civic education, starting it earlier, you know, early and often, the, the earlier they receive it, and the more they receive it, the more likely they are to engage in the process throughout their life. And that provides a healthier, stronger democracy. You've been listening to Christopher Tomlin, who's the executive director for the Connecticut Association of Student Councils. Thank you so much, Christopher, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And you've also been listening to State Representative Kevin Brown. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And coming up next, we hear from both a college Democrat and a college Republican and learn what Election Day is looking like on campus this year. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare.
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, students on college campuses across our state are organizing to get out the vote. Joining us now is Jennifer Cropwell. She's a chief of staff of Connecticut College Democrats and a student at Eastern Connecticut State University. And Nick Scatino, who is a student at Southern Connecticut State University and a young Republican. Thank you both so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. So, Jennifer, I want to start with you. You know, how did you get involved in College Dems? I was reached out um, by uh, a friend of mine who was looking to host an event with the the governor, Ned Lamont, and he was like, I want to have an event on Eastern's campus. How can we make that happen? And so I started up a College Democrats on my campus at Eastern, and then I recently got an email um, this past summer from a group of students who was trying to start up the College Democrats of Connecticut again. Um, and then I applied to be the chief of staff and that then history had it and I became the chief of staff and it has been a great time since. That sounds like an amazing experience and definitely want to dig deeper into that experience in a little bit. But Nick, I want to turn to you real quick too. Um, you know, as Southern, uh, there's not an active college Republican chapter, but you're hoping to get more involved. So what does that look like for you? That's correct. So um, I'm very new to the, the college Republican scene. Uh, I got involved because my, my family has a history of politics in my town and I did four years of model Congress in high school. So uh, I got to the college level, uh, majoring in mathematics. And I said, what do I want to do for a minor? And I said, well, I love talking about politics. I love being involved specifically in local government. And I said, you know what? Uh, I have to minor in political science. I need to still be involved. So I got to talking with uh, Dr. Jonathan Wharton, who I understand is on your show sometimes, I believe Wednesdays. Definitely. Uh, and yeah, I believe it or not, he lives in my town as well. And we got to talking and he said, you know, uh, Young Republicans has been dormant here. Uh, what do you say? You know, you and I, we work together to start that up. So and then, you know, one thing led to another. I got to the pre-interview last week um, and, you know, now we're on the show. Well, it sounds like both of you have very similar trajectories in terms of, well, now this is happening. Uh, Jennifer, how are you working to get other students involved in the electoral process? I feel like a general thread of, of this conversation and the conversation we just had earlier is local politics. Yeah, so um, I started um, by reaching out to students who are interested in politics and interested in human rights. Um, now we have been doing a lot of work with our local um, municipalities and um, getting out the vote with canvassing efforts and phone phone banking efforts as well. Um, And we're just making sure that people know that they can be registered to vote, especially if they're a student on campus, you can get registered to vote whatever town your campus is in. So you don't even have to do the absentee ballot um, from whatever town you've lived in previously. 
So we're just making sure that we're registering voters, uh, making sure that they know that they have this um, right that they can, you know, act upon and making sure that they know what um, Democrats are, are rooting for and um, especially what the young people, um, especially in college, are rooting for. And especially with the experience on a college campus, can you talk about the importance of having opportunities like this uh, where you are? Yes. So I know a big issue, especially within the the state schools, is the lack of funding and then the tuition going up. Um, I try to use that point um, because I know a lot of a lot of students are upset about it. And I try to use that point to my advantage and share share that um, students can use their vote to um, push for things like um, making sure that we have enough spending um, for our schools um, and for our universities and that our tuition does not go up and that we try to keep our tuition um, lower so we can more students are able to um, get an education. And you just mentioned funding and tuition as core issues that students are interested in. What, what else are you hearing from students who might be hesitant to going out to vote? Um, honestly, uh, that they just aren't able to vote and the fact that they have to, maybe they don't know how to register to vote and that they think it's this big task that they have to leap through hoops. But, um, gratefully in Connecticut, it's very easy. You just have to go online. And, um, I know we've done a lot of, um, registration, um, efforts, especially with, um, other, uh, campus clubs, um, to make sure that students know that it's just a simple one, two, three, um, you register to vote online and then you go to vote in the polls or request an absentee ballot, which is easier than ever. Um, and then you can do same day registration. So I know especially today that I'm going to be out on the campus and making sure that students know that they can just go down to the town hall and get registered to vote and then vote right after. And Nick, Connecticut is a pretty Democratic leaning state. You know, what are you hearing from other young Republicans? Well, the problem is uh, you're not hearing a lot from them. Uh, frankly, you're not hearing like of them in general. Um, and it's because the Republican Party gets a very bad rep from the, the federal level. But when you look at the local level, it is a completely different entity. It works completely different. Um, at a federal level, politics, I hate to say it, but it's really become sort of a spectator sport. Everything is very extremist. Um, and there's no moderation. Um, as we saw, you know, Kevin McCarthy was recently removed as the Speaker of the House, which was replaced with uh, Mike Johnson, to uh, who my knowledge uh, has an extensive history of uh, being a far right extremist. Um, so really, at, at the federal level, you get this like it's us versus them mentality. But at a federal level, I mean, excuse me, at a local level, there's a lot more mediation and there's a lot more triangulation, which I think is, you know, the source of of all good politics. Um, like I live in a very democratic town. And uh, our uh, our selectman is, is Republican. He's running unopposed this year because he advocates for bipartisanship and because he actually has a conversation with Democrats. Um, the, the big thing I'm getting at here is that neither side is inherently wrong. Uh, and if you want to you know, run a country effectively, there needs to be a mediation and conversation between the two parties. And as those conversations are ongoing, you know, what are some issues that are top of mind for you? Um. I, I got to be honest with you at a, at a, at a federal level. Well, I, honestly, I think the big thing is that there is that we need to have more mediation, that it doesn't happen. We need to get more progressive people on the Democratic side and on the Republican side who are willing to talk about issues, because, in, you know, until we do that, nothing in general is really going to get solved.
And you you mentioned identities, you know, locally and federally are very different for the Republican Party. What do you think about that is changing? You know, there's a lot of extremism in the party, like you mentioned, but it's also many shades of red. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, shades of red, you know, which is unfortunate, you know, in the House that a lot of moderate Republicans have been silenced um, uh, among them. Like I said before, Kevin McCarthy, the main reason that they uh, got rid of him was because uh, the the far right Republicans in the House felt that uh, that he was, uh, you know, he was cutting too many deals with the Democrats, which I think is a shame that he, he was he was working with his fellow Americans to try and improve the country. And they removed him for that. I think that's that's absolutely horrible. Um, which is why, you know, I, I like to, uh, I like to dabble in local politics as opposed to federal, because, you know, you actually see a lot of change because people are having these conversations and we're not just implementing Republican or democratic policies. We're implementing things that are better for the community. And Jennifer, as we talk about the importance of local politics, can you talk about what's election day looking like for you so far for your campus and your organization? Like I know you mentioned you're going to go out there and canvas and, and let students know that you can register and vote and anything else that you're working on today. Yeah, so um, I know after this call, I have to head down to my local party um, uh, headquarters and um, make sure that I can do this and get out the vote efforts there. I know we're going to do some canvassing, some last minute canvassing, some last minute phone banking. But um, on the College Democrats of America side of things, I know we're hosting a lot of um, phone banking efforts to do um efforts in uh, Virginia um, and Mississippi, just to make sure that, you know, even outside of Connecticut, that we're making sure that the youth voice is heard and that Democrats across the country are getting um, elected. And Jennifer, earlier we uh, spoke with Nick about the identities of the Republican Party and how there's different shades of red. You know, what are your thoughts about the identity of the Democratic Party? You know, do you have similar feelings or what are your thoughts on that? I feel that we're pretty unified in um, our beliefs. I know we are all supporting um, any uh, the Democratic um, National Committee and anything that is progressive and that we need just basic human rights for people. Um, and then sharing that voting rights do matter, um, especially voter suppression um, is real, maybe not in Connecticut, but trying to voice those efforts throughout the country. Um, and it's been, um, a really great time just working with my fellow students. Um, and yeah. And earlier we had talked a little bit about why students would hesitate to go out to vote. So how do you respond when students say their vote doesn't count? Um, it's, it's so easy to, you know, say that, but I know in municipal elections, it really comes down sometimes to that, that one vote to tens, tens of votes and not even hundreds, it's hundreds of votes um, that it may come down to. And so especially in municipal elections, um, your every vote counts um, to whatever party you're voting for. Um, and that I need to tell students and make sure that, you know, the fact that municipal elections are the ones that are going to affect you the most. It's the little um, charters in your towns that are going to affect you the, the most. Um, and knowing that this is the the town and the town rules are going to affect you the most. And maybe, you know, it's hard to um, talk about uh, municipal elections when there's not a lot of efforts to possibly, you know, it's not as publicized, I would say, as a presidential election. So um, trying to make sure that people know that there's an election happening and that 
municipal elections are what's going to affect you and your and your education the most, what it's going to affect how you um, go about your day to day lives. Um, so that's something I've been really pushing for. And Nick, can you respond to what we just heard Jennifer say about getting involved in local politics? I think it's extremely um, important, especially in a place where I live. I live in I live in a small town, um, and at a local level is why I love local politics. If you go out there uh, and you advocate for change, you will see it happen in due time. You will see it happen. It's much easier to sit down and have, have a conversation with your local politicians than it is uh, at a state and federal level. Um, which is which is just fantastic. For instance, uh, when my family first moved here, I was very small. It was around 06. Um, Brantford wasn't as big about cele- well, not celebrating, excuse me, but acknowledging, uh, you know, the uh, attacks on September 11th. Uh, my grandfather was a fire commissioner's liaison in New York. Uh, he was there when it happened. He came down. We moved down to Brantford after he retired. Um, and he went and he went to the fire department and, and, you know, he asked what they had for ceremonies. And he said, listen, I think we need to make a big deal out of this. And it's like, I want to be involved um, and I want to make a change because I think this is important to the community. And here we all are all these years later, uh, every year, it's, it's a very big, uh, very big thing in my town. Uh, eventually, you know, getting involved like that. He wasn't even elected at the time, but because uh, he was a member of the community, he went out and he did things like that. He was able to uh to move up to office he became a second selectman before he passed away in uh june of 2020 and he was even he was able to make uh even more changes uh once he was an elected official so really uh the big takeaway here is that um even if you're not elected you should go out and you should get involved in politics and eventually you know if you if you keep sticking with it you have the potential to be elected you have the potential to make a really big change in your community and other than having this very important conversation together with jennifer as well you know what election day is looking out for you right now nick uh, well, it's, it's a bit chaotic. Uh, I was at a meeting for the Rotary Club uh, in my town before this. I thankfully made it back in time for the interview. I thought I was cutting a little close. Uh, I'm after glad this, that you're I'm, able to join us. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, after this, I'm heading straight to the polls, uh, and then I have a 12 o'clock class. I have to go tackle some logarithms and pre-calculus, so that'll be fun. Well, that sounds like really important work as well. And I have two final questions for both of you. Let's start with Nick first. You know, want to ask, what do people get wrong about your generation, you think, especially when it comes to politics? Ooh, what, what do people get wrong about my generation? I think it's that uh, there's a lot, especially through social media, um, uh, people get the impression that a, the majority of my Gen- like the vast majority of my generation is uh, is is Democrat, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But there are uh, those among us who are Republican and uh, those of us who are Republican are a lot more progressive than uh, those who are currently in office. Uh, and, you know, I th- I hope that in the future, you know, the tides will so- sort of shift um, and we won't really have this extremism anymore. And Jennifer, I want to pose the same question to you. You know, what do people get wrong about your generation? Um, I would have to say that People see us as just complainers, but not ready to put in the work. And I can say they're most definitely wrong. I know throughout Connecticut, um, a lot of college students are ready to put in that work, ready to push for democratic values, um, especially in Connecticut and across the country. Um, Just personally, um, I believe that, you know, if we just put out our efforts to make sure that we're getting the Democrats elected, um, it's just going to personally make uh, this country a whole lot better um, and that we're going to get our our efforts together. And that is what I'm seeing across the country. And I also want to ask you both for some quick final thoughts, starting with Jennifer. You know, what do you hope our listeners take away from this conversation today? 
that uh, it's really important to just go out and vote, that the youth vote is so important, especially these days. Um, you know, we are the future. We are the, we're trying to build a better future for our children and um, the next generation. So knowing that we have to pick up the pieces is something that, you know, we need to make sure that students are hearing and that your vote does matter. And Nick, any final thoughts? What do you hope our listeners get from this conversation? Go get involved in your local politics. Do it as soon as possible. It's very, very important. Um, And also don't just vote for a local politician because they're of the same party that you affiliate with. Uh, Do some research on them. uh, See what they support. See if their views align with your views. Because just because you're in the same party as somebody doesn't mean your views align. That sounds perfect. Thank you both so much. You've been listening to Jennifer Croftwell, who's a chief of staff of Connecticut College Democrats and a student at Eastern Connecticut State University, as well as Nick Scicchino, who's a student at Southern Connecticut State University and a young Republican. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Coming up, we talk about a pretty wild election happening at Connecticut's Beardsley Zoo. This is where we live. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. In recent weeks, all eyes have been on Bridgeport's mayoral race. But there's another election taking place in Park City that's even more wild, let's say. There are five animals running for mayor at the Beardsley Zoo in Bridgeport. And joining us now to talk about the candidates and how you can vote is Greg Dancho. He's the zoo director at Connecticut's Beardsley Zoo in Bridgeport. Thank you so much for joining us today, Greg. Good morning. Beautiful day today for voting. Beautiful day today for voting and beautiful day today for having this very important conversation about your five (laughs) mayoral candidates. Can you tell us how did this all get started and what does it look like right now? Well, you know, it's uh, we at this time of year, you know, and especially just before the election day, you know, things get a little bit, uh, let's say, wild. Uh, not in the zoo wild. You know, people always say that, you know, this, the place, this place is a zoo. You know, it's kind of used in uh, a lot of businesses. And you can also call it the election uh, things. This is a zoo kind of election. But, you know, zoos are actually calm and peaceful places. The animals are calm. They're, 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 we've got nice environments for the animals. So, so when people say this is a zoo, we kind of say, okay, no, no, no. No, the zoos are really peaceful places. So when we looked at the elections over time, uh, we decided, and especially since the, uh, in the last uh, few years, uh, we decided in 2020 to say, let's have our own zoo mayor uh, elected here at Connecticut Spearsley Zoo. And uh, so we asked our staff, uh, who would you think would be a good uh, ambassador for the zoo? And that's really what we're looking at. We're the animal ambassadors uh, as the mayor. And they went out and they uh, picked a few candidates uh, from their staff. And again, each of our uh, animal care staff have uh, worked with animals here at the zoo. Uh, and so they put forth a slate. And in 2020, Wiggles was our first mayor of Connecticut's Beer Zoo. And she she was a chinchilla. So we had a chinchilla that became the first mayor. And because we want everybody to kind of chill out a little bit. So uh, we actually had the inauguration. We had a great, uh, uh, we brought her up in a cart. Uh, we brought her up and had her swear in uh, as our first mayor. And then uh, after that, in 2021, we had Harry, our guinea hog. Uh, he was the mayor. 
And then uh, for 22, it was rhubarb, our two-toed sloth. He had a very slow campaign, built a little momentum at the end, uh, and then took took the took the uh, the office. Uh, and most of the time, he's just hanging out, which was a good time, good to be a mayor, good year for being a mayor, just hanging around uh, in a, in the new uh, Brainforce building. So my brain's been swimming and swinging with your puns, and I am enjoying <laughs> them very much. It's a zoo in my brain right now, actually. So it, I would say it's very difficult following uh, Mayor Wiggles' uh, footsteps, going from chillin' to uh, to a slower pace kind of political mm-hmm. process. So can you talk about what are what's some of your staff is lobbying for certain candidates themselves, right? So what is that looking like right now? So we're looking at the, the zoo with posted, our zoo staff posted uh, the candidates this year. Uh, They decided to do a zooper pack uh, to try to support, to line up the support for their favorites. Uh, And so we have uh, on on the list, we have Tehu, our North American river otter. Uh, You ought to vote for her, of course, because she is a mother to four playful pups. uh, And she's a single mom. And uh, we did unfortunately lose our male otter. Uh, So uh, she has been a tremendous first time mom. Uh, and people really enjoy them a lot because they're so active. And again, she's she her campaign slogan is ready to dive in. Uh, we have Allie, the Eastern box turtle. Now, I just got the, the results, not the results, not the results. We're still we're still going to have voting until eight o'clock tomorrow morning. But um, uh, the the eight o'clock re, uh, votes were taken. And Allie, the box turtle. Now, this is a, this is a, a, a slow horse in the race, but she. Uh, is now leading the polls right now, which is kind of shocking to a lot of people. But Allie the box turtle, she did come out of her shell to enter this race, and so she is a eastern box turtle. She have, she lives in Connecticut uh, as uh, their, her her species lives in Connecticut. She is part of special uh, species of special concern. So we watch out for box turtles because their habitats are being lost. So she is uh, a good ambassador for her species, also good for environmental discussions here in Connecticut. So don't box yourself in. Vote for Allie. Major Tom, the Narragansett turkey. Uh, you know something? Let's talk turkey here. Uh, he's please. not doing well at all. Oh, no. He's, he's not doing well at all. No, he's 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 right now bringing up the rear in the polls. Uh, I think a lot of people have Thanksgiving on their mind. Uh, so maybe he's got to do some some work. You know, I wasn't going uh, to mention that, but I appreciate that you did. <laughs> So yeah, so Major Tom, he's uh, he, uh, he uh, unfortunately he's not doing so well now. And Major Tom's interesting because our Narragansett turkeys are also a envi- um, endangered species. A lot of people look at the endangered species here to do like our like our leopards and our and our red wolves that are some of the most endangered species of animals on the planet. But we even have animals here that are endangered, even if they're uh, a a um, a minor breed or, or a, a breed that is a kind of a domesticated breed because people don't, don't work with, with Narragansett turkeys anymore. So again, the information we can give out for each of these, these animals is, is pretty important. Uh, even if, uh, even if they don't win, it's a good, good speaking, uh, speaking notes for them. Then we have Ella, the black and gold howler monkey. Uh, she is the, uh, one of the animals that come from South America. She is, a younger animal she's uh, that we have here. She is wonderful. One of the things she's done, and, and she's taken over uh, one of uh, uh, her a predecessor uh, uh, in the in the enclosure to where she will put her hand up on the glass uh, when guests come to the zoo. 
Uh, and we feel that's really she's pushing the flesh there. She's pressing the flesh uh, and trying to get her votes in. But it's kind of that kind of connection we love here at the zoo, because that's really what we're, we're all about here is, is trying to make connections between the animals uh, and people so we can save them on our planet. Right. Well, and the clearly, last candidate clearly is she's Dave not monkeying Bird. around either. So and we're not monkeying around here. No, no, no. no. We're climbing to new heights with our monkeys. Absolutely. Uh, and Daisy, the prairie dog, she's she's last on her last candidate. Uh, we really dig her. You know, she is uh, she has basically lives in a coterie, which is a small town of Prairie Dog. We call it Prairie Dog Town. So actually, she has been in running a town for, for many years now. So she says her skills are perfect for this this job. Uh, and we're and she's pushing, pushing very hard. She says there's light at the end of the tunnel. So by eight o'clock tomorrow morning, we'll know who our next mayor of the zoo will be. And uh, again, one of the things we keep saying here, uh, unlike some of the other elections, which we don't we don't say we should be doing. But here at the zoo, we encourage people to vote early and vote often. Stuff that ballot box. Well, that is a bumper sticker I didn't expect to <laughs> to have to invent this morning. And it sounds like just every, here at the zoo. everyone's just, just having a howling good time. And I really dig, I really dig that. So I have to ask you, you know, have you given your official endorsement? Well, as the zoo director, I'm really not uh, uh, at liberty to do so. <laughs> to who? <laughs> to who? Uh, but uh, just say bless you when I say that. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I, I I can't really endorse any, but all these animals are our ambassadors. That when our guests come to visit the zoo, they they each people each one of these animals have their supporters, not just for an election, but just on people who love to come and see them. Uh, the prairie dogs are so active. The howler monkeys are interactive. The, the the North American river otters to see the four baby uh, otter pups uh, are just tremendous for the zoo. Uh, and uh, the messages that we can give out on all our animals here for environment and conservation is very important. But if I had to, if you really had to press me, I'd have to say uh, Tehu uh, would be my vote. And I'm, again, surprise, Ali has, has jumped in the lead. So if people are out there, you know, it's it's really it's a dollar a vote. Uh, help support the zoo, help support our education programs here at the zoo. Uh, and you can go on on make those votes at our beerslyzoo.org website, a uh, relatively simple way to vote. And again, vote early, vote often. And can you talk about how long do people have to vote again? And also who is eligible to vote? Anybody's eligible to vote. Anybody's eligible to vote. We, we, we don't have any, any, uh, any differences. We don't have an age limit here. Uh, we have families can vote, uh, individuals can vote. Uh, again, go to beerslyzoo.org. You look on our website and you'll find it there. And we're going to be keeping the polls open here at the zoo until uh, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. We're extending it a little bit longer than the actual polls because well, actually the zoo wants people to go out and vote. But we, do, uh, we do encourage going out, get to the polls. We know this is an off year for elections, but uh, we really encourage uh, people to think about going and voting also. And hopefully if they see something like this, uh, that that's maybe sparks them to get out and get in the car and get to the polling places. Well, and then as we leave our boxes and see that there is light at the end of the tunnel and stop monkeying around, I need to ask a very important question, which is when is Inauguration Day? Well, that has to be determined by the the uh, the winner of the election. Uh, oh. We will we will we will meet. We do have a uh, a section where the zoo director does meet with them and their their uh, their can the the, the animal care people that. Work to work with them. We'll decide when's going to be the best day, uh, but we will put that out uh, in advance. So if people want to come to the inauguration, we we invite guests to come to visit with us on that day, and we really make kind of a little big deal of it. They do have to they do have to swear in. We do have a swearing in for them. Uh, we do use our animal care providers as the surrogates to 
to to say I do. But uh, but yes, we will be doing it if it's going to be either any one of these animals will uh, will be right in front of their right in front of their habitat uh, during uh, during the inauguration. And really quickly, because we're we're pressing the flesh here anyway, any events <laughs> at the zoo that you would like to spotlight for our listeners to to know and come and check out? Well, again, and again, zoos open. A lot of people don't realize zoos open uh, year round. So a lot of people think that the zoo is only here in the summertime. This is actually the best time of year to come visit us. Uh, we do have, again, the baby otters. We have a baby spider monkey that was born. We're really excited about that. Uh, first time in many, many years we had a baby spider monkey. We had a baby golden lion tamarind born. That is one of the rarest species of primates on the planet. And we opened up this year our new Andean bear habitat. And we have two Andean bears that are there, which is uh, which is Kayumbe and Nuna. Nuna just came to us in a few, a few uh, months ago from the Queen Zoo. She's a young bear. She's very active. And we built this new habitat that we think people really would enjoy coming to see. So, again, don't think of the zoo as just a summertime event. Come to the come to the zoo in the fall and winter. And we do have Glow. If anybody hasn't been to our Glow uh, uh, program, again, check out check out our website. Uh, we do run that at night. We have a whole bunch of, of lit, uh, lit uh, uh, caricatures and animals uh, to walk through here in the evening. Again, a very special place to walk through uh, on the on off hours. Well, thank you for so much for letting me know of these really important events, and I'm adding them to my list of fall and winter <laughs> activities to do, and I hope our listeners will do the same. And you can also find a link on our website to vote for your favorite candidate. Greg Dancho, Zoo Director at Connecticut's Brisley Zoo in Bridgeport, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.